out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. So let me just uh, get to that update right now. Um, Provincial money laundering watchdog needed in wake of federal agency failures. BC inquiry found fines. Sorry. Blah, blah, blah. All right. So according to the Cullen Commission's final report into money laundering in BC has faulted senior provincial government ministers, including former Premier Christy Clark, for being warned about incredible growth in suspected laundering of criminal cash in the government's casinos, but failing to ensure such funds were not accepted. While Commissioner Austin Cullen found that Clark and former B.C. Liberal Gaming Minister Rich Colvin were among the senior elected officials and the B.C. Lottery Corporation managers who failed to stem suspected criminal proceeds that were flooding into B.C. coffers, in some cases ignoring repeated and escalated warnings, Cullen said that there was no evidence that the politicians' failures to act were motivated, motivated by corruption. I don't know. I might, I might have to unmute this so that you guys can kind of weigh in whether or not you think it's corruption. Um, the 1,800-page document released Wednesday also included new data that detailed the stunning growth in cash transactions into BC casinos that investigators first flagged in 2008 and how these transactions continued unabated until at least 2014 when casinos accepted $1.2 billion in cash transactions that were $10,000 or more. Many of these transactions matched indicators of four criminal cash, Cullen said, because they were delivered to casinos in bricks of cash and in duffel bags. As we have covered by just reading Willful Blindness in the last seven days, sophisticated criminals have used BC as a clearinghouse to launder a vast amount of money, Cullen said in media interviews after his report was released. This is fundamentally destabilizing to the economy we want for our province. Cullen also found that BC's economy, including casinos, real estate dealings, banks, and law offices, face big money laundering risks and the failures of the federal RCMP and FinTrack, Ottawa's anti-money laundering agency, were what allowed money laundering to grow. So they found that RCMP and FinTrack were at fault. So FinTrack's reporting regime is essentially wasteful, and the RCMP's lack of attention has allowed for the unchecked growth of money laundering since at least 2012, the report said. This finding resulted in one of his most impactful recommendations, a new BC anti-money laundering enforcement and investigation unit to fill the federal gap. Well, hallelujah. It looks like we might find some people to deport or put in jail. Um, He also recommended that BC implement an independent legislative anti-money laundering commissioner who would be accountable to the public. He concluded that despite mounting evidence of BC's money laundering problems and public concerns since 2008, governments have failed to grasp the nature of the problem and that it is time for this to change this trend permanently. During the inquiry, Cullen heard that money laundering in BC casinos involved loan sharks delivering bundles of $20 bills that had been packaged consistently with the proceeds of drug trafficking, 
to high-profile gamblers who had traveled primarily from China to Canada to play baccarat. Were they listening to this podcast? <laughs> to play baccarat in secluded areas of the casinos. And these foreign high rollers often paid back the loan sharks for the funds they had gambled via transactions in China and Hong Kong. Cullen credited an RCMP anti-money laundering unit, an officer named Barry Baxter, for launching an investigation in 2010 into BC casinos where this type of money laundering was occurring. So I'm just going to give a great big hand clap to Mr. Sam Cooper up there in Canada who doesn't know me, may not know I exist, but you know what? Dude, we're really happy about your work because here's what's going on. We just got the first Republican female Latina from South Texas elected. She is a Republican um, to change the guard after 150 years of voting Democrat in that region where she is in Cameron County. So that's, that's happened. That has happened. Mr. Garza, who was her competitor was denounced. So Garza's out and Flores is in. And Ms. Flores is married to a border patrol agent. What does this mean? Well, it means we might actually get some real advocacy for border enforcement in the Cameron County region, which would be amazing because the cartels think they own that place. And part of the reason is because they're, they're just pumping people in and drugs also, but these are CCP narco back leftist who are doing this all up and down the, uh, the Central American and, and Mexican regions who are impacted by narco cartels who get fentanyl and then sell it. So <clears throat> all that money they make, they, they ship it up to Canada and then it becomes narco cartel drug cash. So you know, they don't just launder it here. It goes to BC, I think. And they have been able to, you know, keep it going because there's no enforcement. So if Canada decides to suddenly enforce law in, in just in Vancouver, it could really, really put a dampening on the way they do things in South Texas. I just want you to know that. It could really put... A problem like tourniquet on what they're doing in South Texas. And I hope that shit happens because that's why Republicans are getting elected in South Texas. Okay, I'm going to go ahead. So the unit summary case at the time that at the time said that the River Rock Casino in Richmond and the Starlight Casino in New Westminster were targeted because they were a very significant source of money laundering activity using wealthy people's Republic of China gamblers as willing pawns in their activity. The individuals actually conducting the buy-ins at the casino and doing the gambling were wealthy Chinese businessmen with little to no ties to Canada, Baxter's report said. These high roller players typically pay back their losses via bank deposits in the People's Republic of China or Hong Kong, which are ultimately brought back to Canada by the loan sharks in non-cash form as legitimate money. This is often done by, by international money laundering groups. 
But Baxter's investigation was canceled in 2012, Cullen found, after the federal government cut funding and the RCMP responded by dropping any focus on money laundering prosecutions. Oh, oh, but it's back on. It's back on. The report found that former gaming minister Coleman at fault for a conflict between him and Baxter, who went public in nearly... In early 2011, with concerns that his team suspected organized crime was using BC casinos in sophisticated money laundering operations, Coleman responded by rebuking Baxter publicly and saying he was wrong. Coleman's comments posed a real risk of misleading the public into believing that there was no basis for concern about suspicious transaction in the province's casinos at a time when Mr. Coleman had a good reason to believe that there was a cause to be worried about the origin of the funds in those transactions, the report said. In interviews after the report's release, Cullen told Global News that he agreed that Coleman's comments could have impeded RCMP investigations. Mm. Not much more. Meanwhile, some experts were left scratching their heads over Cullen's conclusion that he could not find any of the politicians who neglected to stem the flood of suspected dirty cash had personally benefited from their inaction. Okay. One former RCMP officer who investigated transnational crime networks and BC casino probes questioned Cullen's logic. I am sorry, but to be but being willing to continue to take take the money without accountability is a form of corruption. The former police officer told Global News on condition of anonymity because he was not authorized to speak on the matter. Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, who followed the inquiry closely and often criticized BC politicians for turning a blind eye to money laundering, agreed. It is a sad reflection on our current state of affairs that nobody is ever responsible for their inaction or failings, West said on Wednesday. The buck never stops anywhere. It gets passed around. Okay, so it looks like there's an additional reopening of this investigation. We'll see. We're just going to keep hammering on this. Tonight's chapter is the PLA whale, and we haven't even gotten there yet. Um, So I'm inviting you to have discussion in the chat or in, (laughs) in the chat region. I'll just say hello. I'll just put a hello here so you know where it is. Hello. There it is. So you can add your comments about whatever has been said. Um, while the reading takes place. Here we go. The PLA whale. Transferring his wealth between Hong Kong and Canada was as easy as rolling the dice at BC government baccarat tables. Lai Chanqing had a simple motto. I'm not afraid of government officials, he would say. I'm only afraid of government officials who don't have hobbies. By hobbies, Lai meant women and money. He was born in September of 1958 in Fujian, the coastal province bordered by Guangdong to the south of the Taiwan Strait to the east. He only reached third grade, and though barely literate, Lai rose in a time and place in China's history, a surreal time and place, when a unique blend of brazenness, cunning, and charm could turn a smuggler into an oligarch. Like the tycoons of Hong Kong, Lai had his rags to riches story. He was one of eight children in a family of peasant farmers in Xiamen. And under China's laws, he should have stayed where he was born, scratching at the land. But Lai was bigger than that. He, in his his creation myth, it all started when he collected $150 from family and friends to open a small auto parts business. China was in rapid transition in the 1980s, especially in the special economic zones of Guangdong and Fujian. 
where privatization of state assets and promotion of international trade moved forward at light speed under Deng Xiaoping's reforms. In charge of the Fujian economic liberalization, a fast-rising Communist Party princeling named Xi Jinping, who was trying to emulate his father, revolutionary hero Xi Zhongshun, the elder Xi had successfully implemented privatization in Guangdong with the backing of Governor Yi Zhuangping. As for Lai, with nothing but $150 in startup funds, as if by black magic, he multiplied his manufacturing operations year after year, collecting factories and textiles, garments, print, and machinery. By 1991, he was a multi-millionaire. The business paid taxes as required and were held up as a model of the evolving Chinese economy by central Chinese political officials who would come to visit. Lai would testify testify years later. I was encouraged at this time by the deputy minister of Fujian Department of National Security to move to Hong Kong where he said I would enjoy more business activities. Once in Hong Kong, Lai started a real estate development and trading conglomerate called Yuan Hua Company in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, he could access international markets and ship foreign goods into the mainland. By 1995, Yuan Ha Sorry, Yuan Hua had eight business limbs in Hong Kong, Hong Kong, <laughs> and on the mainland, including shipping container businesses in Shanghai. At the same time, the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, pardon, and Chinese intelligence arms were planting trading companies in Hong Kong in efforts, according to Western intelligence analysts, to prepare for the 1997 handover. Lai's growing empire in Hong Kong was deeply intertwined with those Chinese intelligence business fronts. Back in Fujian, the amiable peasant boy called Fatty Lai had become a billionaire and hero to, uh, to China's modernization. He funded schools and playgrounds in Xiamen and bought city's soccer team and started a construction on an 88-story tower. Just how big was he? In Xiamen, Lai had a seven-story palace called the Reed, sorry, the Red Mansion, and a compound leased from China's Public Security Bureau, and beside it, a boxing facility for his personal phalanx of military guards. At the height of his power, Lai was chauffeured in a bulletproof black Mercedes-Benz sedan. He reportedly purchased the vehicle for $1.5 million after it was used in 1997 by President Jiang Zemin, for the ceremonial handover of Hong Kong. And it was said that Lai never traveled in his armored Mercedes without a bag of diamonds and a trailing guard of two Mercedes 600 sedans, trunks stuffed with loads of US dollars and Rolex watches. Wow. That's, that's like bougie. Lai, in essence, was the port of Xiamen. Yuan Hua produced more GDP than all other regional businesses combined. He was able to dictate prices in China's oil trade, purporting, reportedly earning about U.S. $35 million in crude oil shipments per day. But Lai was not a Communist Party princeling. He was a peasant. So there was nowhere to go but down. Lai's empire's secrets finally, finally started to drip out in March 1999, when the son of an elite PLA off official mailed a dossier stacked with evidence to Beijing. The case landed on the desk of China Premier Zhu Rongji, 
a member of the Politburo's standing committee. According to reports from China that are filed in Canadian federal court, the PLA Princeling had incurred a Macau casino loan sharking debt that could not possibly be paid, and the debtor had turned on lie. The evidence was so damning the Politburo had to act, but carefully. There were fears that Lai's corruption touched the highest echelons of the party and possibly even John Zimmon's top aides. Sorry, top aides. So, on April 20th, 1999, Zhu Rongji, I hope I got that right, carved out a special team within the Public Security Bureau called the 420 Investigation Task Force, and they started to probe Lai's operation. Lai had purchased eyes and ears everywhere in China and Hong Kong. By the time murmurs of the 420 investigations reached him in mid-1999, his family was already in Hong Kong and Lai's wife filed fraudulent Canadian investor immigrant applications through Yuan Hua. Meanwhile, Lai had still, still had a card to play. A meeting was arranged and he offered Zhu Rongji a 2 billion yuan bribe, about 350 million to call off the 420 team, according to the Canadian court records, but Zhu refused. On August 13th, an incredibly humid day in Jamin, Lai got a call from a friend, a head of Hong Kong's immigration investigation section. The man said he had been ordered to arrest Lai, and the 420 team was about to raid the Red Mansion. Lai could flee or face execution. But Lai's mole in Hong Kong had a plan. He urged me to go to Canada, from where, he said, perhaps I could work something out, Lai later testified. That night, Lai boarded a speedboat from Chaman and raced across the dark waters to Hong Kong, and within hours his family was flying to Vancouver. They held fraudulent Hong Kong exit documents and used fake Canadian visitor visas, but cleared Canadian customs and immigration. A friend from Hong Kong had a mansion in South Granville, an area of Vancouver popular with Chinese real estate investors and Lai's family was given the home. And immediately, Lai hooked up with his Macau money laundering network, including Big Sister, Betty Yan, Kwok Chun Tom, and the Big Circle Boys. Transferring his wealth between Hong Kong and Canada was as easy as rolling the dice at BC government baccarat tables. Dot, dot, dot. For Lai, the Red Mansion was a double-edged sword. The bottom floors held four decadent dining rooms where Lai would serve his visitors from Beijing shark fin soup, abalone shipped from Africa, and the most expensive of European wines. On the third floor, communist cadres and PLA generals sweated off culinary delights in massage rooms and jacuzzis. On the fourth floor were several dance halls and a movie theater. The Public Security Bureau had an office at the top floor. And on the 5th and 6th floors were private bedrooms. Here, Lai pressed money and prostitutes in the arms of his visitors. While the hidden video cameras rolled tape. The tapes provided invaluable leverages for Lai's empire. But they were turned against him when 420 detectives marched out with boxes of evidence. Wow. What the 420 team found was stunning, even by China's standards of corruption. Lai was running a global smuggling ring, Red Mansion record showed. He had bribed thousands of civilian officials to lubricate his trade, starting with the flies and rising to the tigers. From 1996 to 1999, Lai made at least 
6.4 billion in US dollars records in the Red Mansion showed. In 1997 alone, Lies Cartel had shipped 3,588 stolen Mercedes-Benz, BMWs, and Lexus vehicles through the ports of Hong Kong and Tiananmen. Lai and his underground society thugs traded raw chemicals, computers, telecommunications, rubber, cigarettes, diesel, vast containers of crude, I'm presuming that's crude oil, and more, according to 420 evidence. There were no limitations on the goods they smuggled as long as they could make money, one conspirator testified. It was organized crime at the state level. This is the PLA, People's Liberation Army. And the investigations in China not surprisingly failed to publicize Lai's shipment of weapons and narcotics, which were described in a 2003 U.S. Library of Congress report on Lai Chanxing's case. The 420 Task Force investigation also did not detail Lai's triad ventures into the Macau casinos. But like cash and women, Macau casino junkets, loan sharking, and extortion grease the wheels of Lai's schemes. And after fleeing to Canada, Lai continued where he left off in Hong Kong. The 420 Task Force material indicates that Mr. Lai may not have, or sorry, may have been involved in obtaining videotaped information of compromising activities by government officials to assist in the ultimate objectives of smuggling, a Canadian government lawyer said in November of 2000, after Lai sought asylum in Canada. And I was provided information regarding some degree of continuation of similar activities in Canada. Dot, dot, dot. Okay. We turn the page. When he landed in Vancouver, if Lai was concerned about his problems with the Politburo, he didn't show it. He had run from at least 11 homes in China, a partially constructed 88-story tower, and a multi-billion dollar business. But he also had been moving funds from China into Hong Kong for at least a decade. And he knew that underground banking channels between Hong Kong, Macau, and Vancouver were primed and pumping. Three months after illegally entering Canada, although he didn't have a Canadian bank account, Lai's family purchased a 1.3 million property in South Vancouver, and Lai's wife was on the title. The home, while not extravagant by Vancouver standards, was a good investment. In 2017, it assessed value at 4.3 million Vancouver police were secretly following Lai from the start. He drove around at all hours of the night, and police would park outside while he spent hours inside mansions in South Granville, even pricier Shaughnessy area or sprawling compounds on Richmond farmland. Police quickly noticed that Lai and Betty Yan were tied at the hip. They were in an underground casinos and the Richmond and Vancouver Lottery Corp casinos almost every day. In 1999, the first time police connected them, Lai was in the passenger seat of his blue Range Rover and Yan was driving. Ms. Yan stated they had been at the casino together in explanation of the significant amount of cash she had in her purse, a Canada Border Services report said. When the vehicle pulled away, the police officer who interviewed her found a fake Canadian citizenship card laying on the ground right beside where Lai had been sitting in the vehicle, and the, the card had Lai's picture on it. 
Lai knew he was being watched. Sometimes he would switch cars when he exited a home. He had many cars and in many people's names and many drivers. Officers noticed that Lai would park in alleys outside expensive Japanese restaurants, leaving his car running, while young men would pull up, jump into Lai's car, and then drive away. There are are constant meets with other people in very expensive vehicles, one Canada Border Services agent said years later in a hearing. There was a Mercedes, Lexus, BMWs. He went into very expensive homes, million-dollar homes in Shaughnessy, Surrey, Richmond with sophisticated surveillance equipment. And if Lai really had to slip away, he had the means. In my training, we term it counter-surveillance, the border services agent said at a Lai hearing. There are about five vehicles parked outside a South Granville mansion run as Big Circle Boys Casino. And there were approximately 20 to 25 people that exited that house at the same time including Mr. Lai, and an unknown Asian female got into the BMW, and she blocked our lead car from following Mr. Lai. There were unaccountable legal casinos, sorry, there were unaccountable illegal casinos in Vancouver, like this one, and they had to have had an impact on real estate prices. The mansion Lai was seen leaving was sold for about $1.7 million in 2007, and it was sold for... 5.95 million in 2017 bc land title show so there's no way to calculate how many tens of millions lie and his crew laundered through bc lottery casinos and vancouver mansions but lie was cleaning big time drug money the record showed for example that he put a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage on one of his richmond mansions in order to secure a gambling debt owed to a chinese narco who the DEA said was supplying ecstasy to Big Circle Boys cells in Los Angeles. Like it is done in Macau, Lai leveraged his criminal wealth offshore, using it as collateral pool and borrowing against it in Vancouver. The transactions worked like this. In the casinos, Lai made calls for bags of drug cash from his Big Circle associates. The cash arrived, and then he used it to buy Baccarat chips, and then laundered the funds out of the casino cash cages through high-value chips, $100 bills, and casino checks. Lai could then loan these laundered funds out to fellow gamblers in his own illegal casinos throughout Vancouver and get repaid in checks and other forms of currency, real estate, or luxury vehicles. And he could pay back his own gambling cash loans in other jurisdictions, including China, Macau, and Hong Kong, where his wealth was hidden in underground banks or assets. All of these transactions would serve a few key purposes, including ultimately moving funds to jurisdictions such as Hong Kong or Guangdong or Burma, where the Big Circle Boys produced heroin, ecstasy, and fentanyl. But the first objective was simpler, to obscure the blood-soaked path of $20 bills taken out of the hands of impoverished heroin junkies in Vancouver's downtown Eastside, transferred into the hands of low-level drug dealers, then stored and redistributed into the hands of loan sharks, and next loaned into the hands of VIP gamblers, and transferred into casino cash cages. On paper, at least, BC Lottery Records established that Lai made 69 transactions of $10,000 or more at government casinos in Richmond and Vancouver from September 1999 to March 2000, 
And at the same time, he made 30 trips to Ontario's Casino Niagara, where he was valued, was a valued VIP. He gambled $3 million in the Ontario Casino in a few months, court records say, and lost 500000 Lies traveling companion for the Casino Niagara junkets, an alleged Vancouver Big Circle boy associate named Billy Chen, later testified that Ontario casino managers had com- comped his and Lies flights to Toronto and paid for their hotels and more. Police also said that Lai visited various casinos in Ontario with members of the Kung Lok Triad in Toronto, including gangsters known as Black Ghost Ming and Stupid Ricky. Lai was also connected to the Big Circle Boys active in gambling, prostitution, and drug trafficking in Saskatchewan. But it was, it was in the Richmond Casino where Lai's betting habits were so gargantuan and brazen that he first attracted the attention from security staff. One security manager, a man named Proka Aramovic, told me that Lai wanted to bet in the range of $1 million per night. Another security manager told me that Lai asked staff to let him store $500,000 cash in casino vault for his convenience. Aramovic says he was deeply concerned that some staff in the casino were counseling others to turn a blind eye to heavyweights, like Betty Yan and Lai Shanxing. So he, Chanxing. So he started to secretly forward evidence to a BC Lottery Corp investigator. And Aramovic wasn't alone in his suspicions about um, casino managers. Doug Spencer, a Vancouver gang squad officer, recalled the case of one high roller who took wads of cash from a young Asian young Asian men before he was beaten with pieces of metal rebar. Uh, He had his legs broken and he was kicked several times in the head, Spencer told me. I identified these young men as well as their boss, an older Asian female named Big Sister, real name, Betty Yan. Spencer went to Richmond Casino to find and arrest Betty Yan for extortion. I located the manager and asked her if she had seen Betty around lately. The manager said no. I literally looked over her shoulder and I see Betty seated. I walked up, arrested her, and handcuffed her. On the way out, I told the manager I would be back and arrest her for obstruction. According to Spencer, his boss was happy with Betty Ann, but with the Betty Ann bust, but told him it was better to leave the casino manager alone. Spencer came away thinking that senior police didn't want the headache with BC government leaders. There are loan sharks all over the casinos and have been as far back as I can remember, Spencer said. The politicians turn a blind eye. Dot, dot, dot. Records show that in early 2000, a Lottery Corp investigator named Gordon Board had placed surveillance on Lye and Betty Yan in the Great Canadian Vancouver and Richmond Casino locations. Board's investigation found that Lye's whale operation was facilitated by many big circle boys inside the casinos. They were loan sharks and drug dealers, cash deliverers, chip passers, and gophers who, would, who could front lies transactions. One roll of the videotape showed the cash coming in. The Richmond Casino where Mr. Lie was observed playing at a table. It was obvious he ran out of cash to do any further buy-ins, Board testified in 2001. He made a cellular phone call. A short one, put the phone away, and just sat there occupying a place at the table. Ten minutes later, 
a big circle boy showed up and handed over an amount of cash to Mr. Lai. And another video in Great Canadian Vancouver Casino showed the chips going out. While taking a break from the Baccarat tables, Lies would relax would relax in a smoking room and wait for a gopher named Stephen Chow to sit down and chat. Lai would shovel fistfuls of chips to Chow tape show and Chow would go and cash the chips out for Lai. It meant that Lai's transactions were completely invisible to Canada's anti-laundering reporting system. He had small armies of gangsters, relatives, and whales handling his chips in BC casinos, allowing him to anonymously launder incalculable amounts of drug-dealing funds. <sighs> Stone Lee, then a surveillance manager for Great Canadian, remembered watching Lai throwing down $20,000 bets at a Baccarat table. Lee knew that Lai was China's most wanted fugitive and informed his managers nothing was done, Lee said. Finally, in March 2000, based on Gordon Board's investigations, BC Lottery Corp had to act on Lai and his loan sharks. Betty Yan and Lai were involved in an incident in February 2000 at a casino in BC, wherein they were observed by security making suspicious financial transactions and chip-passing that resulted in both of them being barred from casinos in BC for two years. Lottery Corp records say it is suspected that this group's involved in loan sharking activities in and around casinos. But Lai returned the banning letter unopened and simply continued to gamble at the Royal Diamond, a downtown Vancouver casino owned by a man named Gary Jackson. Jackson, sorry. Did Mr. Jackson agree to support the ban? Gordon Board was asked by a Canadian government lawyer in 2001 in Lai's refugee hearing. To the contrary, he did not want to comply, the board said. This is why this high-level meeting had to take place. The issue of chip passing was so serious, Board explained, that for the Lottery Corp or casino managers to knowingly turn a blind eye to it could mean criminal charges. The reason is transactions of over $10,000 per day by one gambler in any casino had to be recorded so Canadian regulators could flag money in laundering. But if one whale gambler had 10 gangsters cashing in and cashing out for him, he could bet 10 times the amount required to be recorded. In his testimony, the Royal Diamond Casino owner, Jackson, explained why he was resistant to Gordon Board's directive. Lie was just one of about 30 similar whales that the Royal Diamond Jackson claimed, whereas other BC casinos had hundreds of whales who could have been flagged for similar transactions. And finally, Jackson said he had received legal advice that the Canadian Charter of Rights could protect high rollers from casino bans. Ugh. My concern with what the BCLC was trying to impose was a banning of players based on suspicion. I felt it was not in the best interest of either party or the government to act in that fashion. To my mind, these answers highlighted the self-serving reasoning that would be repeated over and again in BC's casino industry until Ross Alderson met with Calvin Krusty in July of 2015 and warned his Lottery Corp bosses that a massive RCMP investigation would raise the possibility of criminal charges on casino managers. Meanwhile, 
At Lai's refugee board hearing in 2001, a government lawyer said even after Lai's casino bans, he felt secure, comfortable, and confident that if there was little, if, if any possibility, his family would be removed from Canada. Oh my God. It's my editorial, sorry. Uh, but Lai didn't know the 420 task force had a loan sharking spy inside the Richmond and Vancouver's casinos. Dot, dot, dot. Betty Yan was playing for so many sides, it was hard to keep the wires straight. She was an informant for the RCMP's Richmond Bureau, flipping her handler's intel on the triads. And in 2000, when Yan was faced with deportation to China, she decided it was a good time to let Canadian police know that her father worked for China's Public Security Bureau. She said that while running her Big Circle Boys operation out of Vancouver's casinos, she had also been spying for China. Oh, great. Uh, and while Lai Changxing had arrived in August 1999, her value in Beijing had shot through the roof. China's leaders were terrified that Lai would spill state secrets, so Yen asked to get, the, get next to Lai and to soften him up for the 420 task force. This was according to the Canadian intelligence official who was a primary source for Fabian Dawson. Betty was a player with the gangs, with us and some think Chinese intelligence, Dawson quoted the RCMP official in a 2009 report for Province. According to Dawson's source, Betty Yan facilitated negotiations between 420 team agents and Lai, initially by setting up phone calls between Vancouver and China. Lai knew that Beijing badly wanted him. After he fled from Hong Kong, some of his family had been beaten and jailed. By Lai, but Lai also knew he held powerful secrets, which gave him some leverage. And he knew that his conspirators were getting executed in the Yuan Hua takedown. And Chinese agents didn't see international borders as an impediment. China had many ways to insert its spies. Just as the Chinese Communist Party had planted the unaccountable window companies in Hong Kong, usually import-export firms, they also had many state-sponsored accessory companies in Vancouver. Two of these companies were Top Glory, a tiny storefront on East Hastings in Chinatown, and Tri-Cell Forest Products, an office located in Canada Place, a prominent international trade and tourism center on Vancouver's downtown waterfront. Both companies were subsidiaries of state-owned corporations in Beijing, uh, Canadian court records say. On May 16th of 2000, Canada's embassy in China got a letter from a Beijing company calling itself China Light Industrial Products Import-Export, announcing a trade mission to Vancouver sponsored by Tricell. Respectfully requesting entry visas to be issued to three persons comprising Lai Shui Qiang, Lai Chan Xing's brother, and so on, belonging to the trade group, for the purpose of entering your noble country, the, mes the message said. Another letter from China Grain Oil Foods Import-Export Group said, Three persons of our company will depart Beijing to visit your noble country at the invitation of Top Glory Company. The visas were approved, and that's how three... 420 team spies entered Canada through Vancouver Airport on May 31st, falsely declaring themselves as businessmen 
and bringing Lai Chanxing's brother with them. Betty, Betty Yan continued to earn her Guangxi from all sides. She set up the first meeting between Lai and the 420 agents at the Delta Hotel in Richmond, where Lai also rented a room for himself in preparation for negotiations. And Yan notified the RCMP, too. That hotel meeting in Richmond, Betty, that, Betty set that up, Fabian Dawson told me, citing his RCMP sources. She set Lai up, and she also told RCMP about the meeting. And Special O, the RCMP surveillance unit, tailed Betty and Lai there to the Delta. Lai met with 420 agents three times in June, and the first meeting was so cordial that Lai helped the spies find a more comfortable hotel and paid for their rooms. According to Lai, the 420 team put six issues on the table, Beijing had to bring him back, and that was never negotiable. And they wanted information on certain elite officials. They would allow Lai to keep a portion of his fortune if he voluntarily returned. And they would return Chinese identity cards to Lai's relatives and give them lighter sentences if Lai would come voluntarily. And unlike some of his conspirators, Lai would escape with the death sentence. But after a week, Lai broke off talks and he walked into a government office in Vancouver to declare asylum. His refugee claim was allowed to proceed while secret discussions between Beijing and Ottawa were occurring in the background, RCMP sources told me. The RCMP finally stepped in on orders from Ottawa and on November 23, 2000, Lai was arrested while gambling at Casino Niagara. After 11 years of legal wrangling and the production of thousands of court records, Lai was finally extradited in 2011. And the evidence Lai left behind gave me a paper trail to map the network of Chinese gangsters, gamblers, soldiers, and spies who are endangering the West. One of the best examples is this. By searching Chinese government records online, I found that Top Glory and Tricell, the front company, companies used by Chinese agents, were on the same list of state accessory companies in BC as Watercube, the Richmond Massage Spa run by Paul King Jin. Dot, dot, dot. One of the first orders of business in Lai's refugee case was for Canadian lawyers to decide whether the 420 task force's accusation that Lai was the kingpin of Chinese largest organized crime smuggling ring since 1949 had any merit. Lai characterized his bribes as loans rather than payoffs, but there was too much credible testimony from the officials he enriched for Lai to claim innocence. And he described why it was impossible to count every person he had bought. Officials from across China preparing to travel to Canada or the United States would visit Lai first in Hong Kong. If they were big enough, Lai would meet them himself and dole out the stacks of U.S. dollars for spending abroad. If they weren't that important, Lai would just stand, just send emissaries. Some of them, I don't even know them, Lai testified. Some of them were government officials referred to me by my friends. They would say, hey, if you go to Hong Kong, you can go look for Lai Chanqing. This is a kind of tradition that Chinese people keep. Lai's bribes greased national security officials in ports throughout China so that he could run his ships of contraband inland. 
A Canadian government investigator tra- traveled to China to interview some of the highest officials in Lai's network. The Canadian transcripts show that one conspirator, the Director General of Customs in Xiamen, admitted that Lai had visited his office and told him it was not proper for a Chinese official to be driving a shabby car. So, so Lai left him a black Lexus 400 and a tiger pelt for his office, which Lai said would ward off bad spirits. Closer to the top of Lai's payroll was China's deputy Sec- security chief, Li Jixu. I hope I'm saying that right who directed the nation's police and controlled its borders. Li Jizhu acknowledged that in one case, Lai had called him and requested intervention when one of Li's subordinates had seized some of Lai's oil tankers. The bribes that Li acknowledged taking included a gift of 121000 from Lai to Li's wife to open up a restaurant in Beijing. And Lai had wired 500000 to Lee's daughter in San Francisco, where Lee's family had sus- substantial business dealings. This was the type of loan that resembled Lai's wiring of $250,000 to the son of Xiamen's vice mayor, who was in Australia and wanted some financing to construct a home. Lee Jisoo said that Lai Chan-shing was, was generous with smaller amounts of spending money, too. He told Canadian investigators about the time he visited Lai, who was staying in the presidential suite of the Palace Hotel in Beijing. Lee was sitting in the back seat of his sedan, and Lai approached the vehicle, opened the door, and left a stack of $1,000, thousands of dollars, on the back seat. Dot, dot, dot. There was never a question about Lai's bribes. But Canadian courts had to decide if Lai could possibly be what he said. Just a persecuted businessman caught up in an espionage power struggle. So Lai was allowed to tell his story, starting with his reasons for relocating to Hong Kong in the first place. According to Lai, in 1991, in the aftermath of the Tiananmen Square massacre, China's Ministry of National Security tasked him with spying on students and pro-democracy groups in Hong Kong. Fujian's deputy director of foreign affairs had asked Lai to meet and he said I was too famous in Xiamen, Lai testified. He said, if they asked me to go to Hong Kong to do things for them and I asked him what kind of things you want me to do. At the time, there was June 4th, Tiananmen Square Commemoration Democracy Movement. A lot of student movements, so they want me to go back to check for this. So according to Lai, while running Yuan Hua, he monitored Hong Kong citizens and bureaucrats and transferred intelligence back to Beijing. And as the 1997 handover approached, Lai moved higher in China's national security ranks, obtaining a card to travel anywhere in China and the power to order arrests as a reward for recruiting and paying the salaries the 16 Taiwanese double agents in Hong Kong. I was asked to provide intelligence on Taiwan. For example, the location of Taiwanese intelligence stations in Hong Kong and PRC, I testified, and the type of weapons purchases Taiwan sought to make. Lai was also moving deeper into networks of intelligence trading, where spies circled each other, 
in Hong Kong's underground and arranged to meet in Macau casinos and exchange information in return for massive amounts of cash. One of Lai's more stunning claims was that he successfully turned Taiwan's head of military intelligence in Hong Kong and facilitated the transfer of five major pieces of secret military information to Beijing. Lai said that his Taiwanese military source, for example, knew that the, a People's Liberation Army general had sold secrets in Macau for 500000 U.S. dollars. One of the pieces of information was that in 1996, when PRC was threatening to launch missiles against Taiwan, Taiwan was aware that Beijing had determined not to arm the missiles, Lai testified in an affidavit. According to Lai, when Beijing sent an agent named Mr. Deng to Lai's red mansion in Xiamen, in order to vet the Taiwanese military intelligence sources evidence, Mr. Deng response, responded by abruptly arresting Lai's source. And this triggered the national security power struggle that ultimately forced Lai to flee to Canada, he claimed. But strangely, when Lai arrived in Vancouver, it was Mr. Deng, the agent from Beijing, who sold his own South Granville property to Lai's wife and provided Lai with bags of cash to gamble. Mr. Deng reluctantly testified in Lai's refugee case in Canada and admitted to dealing with Lai in China and also providing Lai's gambling cash in Vancouver, but Mr. Deng denied being a Chinese spy. <coughs> Pardon me. China also downplayed Lai's espionage claims. Lai Chanxing provided some information regarding the circumstances of Hong Kong and Taiwan to the Chinese State Security Authority, Chinese government lawyers asserted in Lai's refugee case, Lai was not asked to be a member of Chinese state security authority. Dot, dot, dot. April 15, 2009. At 4.20 a.m., BC Integrated Homicide Investigation Team got the call from dispatchers and detectives to pull up to a dreary industrial complex on Shell Road beside the Fraser River in Richmond. Big Sister was slumped over in the driver's seat of her gray Mercedes-Benz, shot dead. She was parked in front of the Dynasty Club, a big Circle Boys underground casino. It was only a matter of time, Fabian Dawson wrote in the province, quoting a Vancouver police source. She was a violent woman who had been using her own kids as human shields when she felt that there was a hit out on her. The source said, The list of people who wanted her dead is long and large. Affidavits and filed in Canadian federal court show how, Betty, how closely Betty Yen and Lai's operations were intertwined from the time Lai landed in Vancouver. But more crucially for me, to understand how China's organized crime and espionage hub established a beachhead on Canada's west coast, the records show that Canada's legal and immigration systems allowed Lai to roam free for a decade, using computers to run virtual Macau casino operations, selling young women to whale gamblers, laundering big circle boy drug cash into real estate with absolute impunity, and using an army of straw buyers to launder funds in BC government casinos. Lai's central bail release condition all the way back to 2001 was that he could not associate with Big Circle Boys and Kung Lok Triad in Vancouver and Toronto, and specifically Big Circle bosses Betty Yan and Kwong Chung Tam. 
But in a 2011, 2011 sworn statement seeking to have jail, lied jailed, Canada Border Services Agency investigator Cheryl Shapka, Shab, too many shows. <laughs> I need a show break. Showed that Lyde had constantly breached these conditions, and Shapka said she had started a new investigation of Lyde in March 2009. She looked into Lyde's string of properties in Vancouver and Richmond, and his extensive contracts contacts with Big Circle Boys, active in major narco networks running from Toronto to Los Angeles to Vancouver. One of Lai's properties, a gated mansion in central Richmond, was purchased in the name of his girlfriend, Ping Ping, in August 2008. This was several months after a female big circle boy working for Lai was banned from a BC lottery casino in Coquitlam for her involvement in suspicious transactions and chip-passing incidents. The Richmond mansion had $500,000 mortgage on it from a big circle boy named Henry Ting. And Ting was often in contact with Lies via a cell phone number that Ting had used to receive 116 phone calls from suspects in the RCMP's investigation of a cocaine importation ring active in California and Ontario. Shaka said Ting's mortgage was a standard method of loan shark real estate financing. Wow. Ting claims he supports his family by loan sharking and he charges interest rate to, to patrons in casinos, specifically River Rock Casino in Richmond, Shapka wrote. According to Shapka, Henry Ting and many other big circle boys often visit, visited one of Lai's more opulent properties. It was a 3,500 square foot rancher on a secluded 1.72 acre farmland lot on Gilbert Road in the southwest corner of Richmond, right beside the ocean and surrounded by tall cedar hedges. Lai bought the mansion in October of 2008. The same month, Ping Ping and Lai's son had cashed out $150,000 worth of gambling chips for a third individual at the Starlight Casino, a BC lottery casino in the suburb of New Westminster. The custom rancher on Gilbert Road cost over $250,000 to renovate, with new oak floors, granite countertops, a 600-square-foot gourmet kitchen, and a master bedroom with a jacuzzi. Lai had also constructed a detached garage and paved over most of the farmland on the property to build a parking lot with more than 16 stalls. The garage housed six separate bedrooms that each contained a bed and a computer. Lai paid the construction workers in cash, Shapka's affidavit said, and based on their description, the bills may have been Chinese yuan. So now Lai had built a mansion with big circle boy narco dollars and turned into a transactional money laundering instrument. The RCMP have advised me that they conducted surveillance on the property on a number of occasions and confirmed that they observed Lai along with numerous other individuals, Shapka wrote. The RCMP had source information stating that Lai was running a private, illegal gambling club on the premises and the rooms in the garage were used by young females to entertain customers privately. Visitors to Lai's casino included Kuang Chung Tam and Betty Yan, according to the Shapka intelligence sources. And Lai had computer terminals that were linked, to live, linked live to an unidentified casino in Macau. People would come to the residence to play baccarat on the computers once 
against other players who were playing in Macau. The police sources said, The gambling and betting was facilitated at the residence, with the game occurring in Macau, and, and Mr. Lai guaranteed that the money bet by the players at the Richmond residence would be paid in the game in Macau. In other words, Lai Chanching and unidentified Macau VIP room operators were running a China-Canada underground bank casino. If a gambler at Lai's virtual baccarat table won against the players in the Macau casino, he would be paid out by Lai's criminal casino bank in the Richmond mansion. But if a player lost money, he would pay the money he lost to Mr. Lai. And Mr. Lai was then responsible for paying the operators of the game in Macau. This evidence was extremely illuminating for my understanding of the Vancouver model. It means that big circle boys are running borderless Chinese casinos in Canada using virtual technology. And Lai's VIPs could enjoy the same luxuries that Stanley Ho's casino and Macau offered. Mr. Lai had a private chef and masseuses available to the players while they gambled, an affidavit said. And of course, Lai's casino was funded by Big Circle Boys Loan Sharks. Betty Yan had entered into an agreement with Mr. Lai wherein she would be permitted to provide loan shark services at the residence, the affidavit says. In exchange for being permitted to provide this service, Betty Yan provided a portion of the profit from the usurious loans to Mr. Lai. Mr. Lai arranged for players to borrow money from Betty Yan to continue gambling. But the agreement was short-lived for Big Sister. Police sources believe that Lai had been looking at Yan with suspicion for some time, and when they disagreed over lending arrangements at Lai's casino, Yan's reputation suffered. In flyers posted all over Richmond, Betty Yan was implicated in the murder on 15th of September 2002 of her alleged, alleged boss, Shapka's affidavit said, The RCMP advised me that her alleged boss had been the leader of a big circle boy's cell and that Betty Yan was a member of his cell. Subsequent to his death, they believe she assumed leadership of her own big circle boy's cell. And Shapka, Shapka's affidavit pointed to Yan's dispute with Lai before her execution. Betty Yan was in frequent contact with Lai in the months preceding her murder, Shapka wrote. Prior to her murder, she and her husband attended Lai's Gilbert Road Casino for dinner with Lai and Ping Ping. Betty Yan's husband also advised the RCMP that Lai owed her $300,000, but the RCMP confirmed Lai told them he owed Betty Yan $150,000. Betty Yan's murder remains unsolved. Hmm. But all of this shocking detail about Chinese transnational crime failed to impress the Canadian Immigration and Refugee Board. <laughs> In early tw July 2011, an adjudicator found that Lai was not a flight risk and his association with Betty Yan wasn't a big problem. In one particularly absurd passage, the adjudicator reasoned that Betty Yan was bonded to Vancouver's upper crust. So, if well-known Vancouverites could associate with Big Sister... Couldn't lie, Chan Cheng, too. Ms. Yan was treated very well by the headmaster of West Point Gray Academy, and other parents at the school were friendly with Ms. Yan, were aware of her wealth and her lifestyle, and had no reason to disconnect their ties with her, the adjudicator wrote, citing a McLean's article. There certainly seems to be information in the article 
that these people deny having known Yan was a lone shark. And it leads me to the question of how or why Lai could have known that Ms. Yan about whether she was a big underworld criminal or a big circle boy. It was typical of many strange legal decisions in Lai's refugee case. Dot, dot, dot. Lai was deported in July of 2011 and jailed for life in China. The Politburo Standing Committee suffered deep embarrassment in Lai's Canadian court battle, but also snuffed out a fire at its gate. Evidently, because of Ottawa's lack of interest in getting into the bottom of Lai Chanqing's case, the eight Politburo men who ruled China were spared the intense scrutiny they might have faced, and Canadians missed an opportunity to peer into the true nature of China's economic system. Just how high did Lai's corruption reach? Let's find out. Turn the page. The answer is unlikely to ever be known outside a very small circle in Beijing. But Jia Qingling, an ally of Jian Zemin and the CCP boss in Fujian during Lai's heyday, was implicated in the 420 probes. And his wife was accused of taking bribes from Lai. Jia Kingling, however, was officially cleared. And based on his ties to Jiang John, John Zimin, Jia was promoted to the Politburo Standing Committee in 2007. Dogged by corruption, corruption charges, China's fourth most powerful Communist Party leader, Jia Kingling, had been seen as proof that in the Communist Party's murky politics, connections trump clean hands, is how Reuters summarized Jia's magical promotion. The second most powerful Communist Party official in Fujian during Lai's crime spree, Deputy Government Deputy Governor Xi Jinping, Jinping blah, blah, fared even better. While she was advancing towards China's presidency in 2011, it was reported that he was summoned to Beijing to explain Lai's case. And some media reports in China suggest that she himself may have been viewed as a suspect. But in 2012, the South China Morning Post reported several people who worked under Xi in Fujian said it was hard to notice any flaws with him, even as the controversial Yuanhua smuggling case ensnared at least 700 central government and local officials. A story quoted in an anonymous source close to the Fujian government. No evidence shows Xi, Fujian's number two leader, after Jian Qingling had a connection with Aixing Lai. L-A-I. That's, that's how you spell that guy's name. Lai. The source said, almost all the provincial government officials, including our party head, Jia, were so proud of making friends with A. Xing, but Xi was a rare senior official who tried to keep his distance from A. Xing. So the official line from Beijing is that Xi remained completely above lies corruption of Xiamen's special economic zone, the project for privatizing state assets that Xi was directly responsible for overseeing. Fair enough. But there are remaining questions from Lai's case that highlight national security risks for the West that have not yet been understood in Canada. What did the Yuan Hua case really entail? Was it about bribery? Actually, 
More likely, it seems to be a textbook example of China's so-called white glove system and the Chinese Communist Party's leveraging of criminals to gather intelligence. Lai was allowed to monopolize China's oil trade with his access to the country's military vessels and ports. He robbed China's communist economy and paid the dividends to himself and its leaders. But corruption of this scale can't occur unless extremely powerful leaders pull the strings. This is the white glove system. In order to conceal their ownership of privatized state assets, red princelings use the white gloves of the People's Liberation Army figures, just like Lai. In fact, after Lai fled to Canada, a young Fujian man named Ye Jianming, who is believed to have Chinese intelligence connections, bought Lai's oil asset at auction and then built a transnational oil conglomerate worth about 40 billion U.S. dollars. That was before Yi was disappeared in March of 2018 after a U.N. corruption case surfaced with direct connections to Macau, a Macau casino tycoon named Ning Lapseng. I'll come back to that case in this book's final chapters. But what about Lai's claims of involvement in military intelligence and foreign espionage? A Canadian judge said that they were not credible, but the judge obviously didn't understand how organized crime, espionage, and corruption converge in China's system, and recall that Lai himself said it was a Chinese security official who told him to take his racket to Hong Kong and report back on Taiwanese intelligence. It is textbook example of how the Chinese Communist Party co-ops organized crime. Dr. James Mulvinon, a Chinese military and espionage expert who has testified before a U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, explains, Lies place in China's security apparatus in his report to get rich is unprofessional. From the beginning of the Yuan Hua scandal, rumors swirled around the central participation of the PLA in the smuggling racket, Mulvinon wrote in 2003. There were widespread reports of rampant smuggling by the military of crude oil, petrochemical products, plastics, telecommunications equipment, guns, ammunition, chemical raw materials, steel, computer, computers, cars, semiconductors, counterfeit money, drugs, cigarettes, electronics, and food. Mulvinon also noted, contrary to Beijing's response in Lai's refugee case, that Lai had markers of an elite military and intelligence position. This included white plates on his bulletproof Mercedes-Benz bearing a Chinese character, Jia in red, which usually signifies the PLA General Staff Department owns the vehicle. Another side of lines lies ties to espionage networks, Mulvinon wrote, was the prosecution of former General Staff Department Intelligence Chief General Ji Shendi, Sheng Dei. Boy, this is tough. Y'all are going to have to pray for me. On multiple accounts of corruptions. General Xi, General Ji, sorry, had as head of military intelligence had access to large amounts of money for intelligence operations and control over department's front companies, Mulvinon reports said. And Lai's smuggling opera- or operation included family members of Admiral Liu. Joaquin, and then China's top general. 
then China's top general. Mulvinan noted that prior to Yuan Hua scandal, General Ji Shangdei had been accused of funneling $300,000 to several of Admiral Liu Huaqing's daughters in the United States. The $300,000 was ultimately forwarded to Chinese agents and Macau casino bosses involved in fundraising for President Bill Clinton in the 1996 Clinton-Gore re-election effort. Holy crap. Back to Lai's extradition case. I think the evidence suggests that Lai's adventures in Canada involve a great deal more than inveterate gambling and drug trafficking. And there are still more indications of international intrigue hovering over Lai's case. One example is China's new most wanted man, Miles Guo, the controversial billionaire real estate developer who fled China in 2014. Like Lai, Guo was visited by Chinese agents who claimed to be businessmen. The Wall Street Journal had reported the FBI unsuccessfully tried to cultivate Guo as an a counterintelligence informant, and now Guo faces FBI fraud charges for his strange media and fundraising activities. Guo has continued to broadcast allegations against China's princelings from the safety of his New York City residence, a Fifth Avenue penthouse worth about $70 million. Some of his claims have proven true, but many seem to be self-serving hyperbole. Whether it's true or not, Guo claims to know Lai and his network. Lai Chanxing, before getting rich, his boss was PLA General Staff Department Intelligence Chief Ji Shengde, Guo claimed in a media post in 2018. At that time, Ji Shengde was very good with me, but we don't have to rely on Guo's claims to establish PLA interest in Lai Chanxing. In 2011, an elite cyber war team operated from the PLA General Staff Department in Shanghai was monitored by U.S. investigators while mounting presidential or persistent attacks on corporate and national security assets in the United States and Canada. The team, called Unit 61398, is directed by Chinese Communist Party's most elite leaders. It hacked into U.S. nuclear assets, U.N. nation computers, United Nations computers, Canadian and U.S. government offices, and critical telecommunications infrastructure. Unit 61398 also hacked into a Canadian Immigration and Refugee Board adjudicator's computer. This was the adjudicator handling Lai's case. The impact of the hack is unknown, obviously, though the hack was important for China. Unit 61398's other famous target in Canada was Nortel, the world's dominant internet technology provider until it collapsed in 2009 and China's 5G champion Huawei rose in its place. That is a stunning revelation. Really, really, really. Nortel is a huge case of how China actually just toppled, just ate it alive to the, I mean, unbelievable. You couldn't use anything in the Nortel building afterwards. The, the, the postmortem on the Nortel, this is just my editorial here, uh, reported through Canadian media was stunning. It was abs, you couldn't use anything. It was completely, you know, just gutted. You had to gut everything because uh, the Chinese Communist Party had, had just attacked it to death. Whew. 
That is huge. Okay, so that is it for that chapter. And I am so glad everybody stayed with me through this really long chapter, really interesting chapter. But don't forget to stop by uh, Saturday to check out Naomi Wolf. Um, we'll be following up on some pretty incredible AI news at that time. There's new legislation uh, being floated both in the U.S. Congress and in Europe. So uh, come by. Like, I'm going to start the show at noon just so I can get through that news because Naomi's going to want her own hour. So I'm going to put in a time, time slot for noon on Saturday, talk for about an hour about AI stuff, and then we're going to kick it to Naomi. So... I'm so glad you stopped by. Thank you for, for listening in to The Unsanctioned Citizen. We will return tomorrow at 7.20 p.m. to read Chapter 9, The Illegal Gaming Unit from Willful Blindness. Um, thanks for stopping in. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.